The Charles Adler Show starts now. I'm Mr. Justin Trudeau and his wife, Sophie Gregoire. Trudeau separating. We'll talk about it in just a few moments with an old friend. Some of the feedback I'm getting on the program, people are asking, Chuck, do you only talk to old friends? Do you have choices about that? I don't only talk to old friends, but I prefer old friends. And yes, yeah, I will admit to you, it's one of the great perks and privileges of podcasting. I get to talk to who I want to talk to. And I'm like anybody else in this world. I like to talk to people I know. And it's a catch-up session today with Matt Gurney, because Matt, you and I haven't publicly talked in, I'd say, ooh, at least half a decade. About five years. The shifting fortunes of radio affiliations. Yeah, I'll start with the perfunctory uh, Canadian apology. I often uh, say Canadians over-apologize. Americans really criticize us for apologizing way too frequently. But it's just the, the polite, decent, generous, charitable people we are. So my, my apologies for, for going for five years without uh, saying hi. Uh, before we talk about the Trudeaus, and that's, of course, the lead story, I want to ask you about this sub-stack that you're doing because everybody is saying really, really great things about it. You're no longer a staffer for the National Post, but you've got the line. So how do you come up with the name and what's it all about? Uh, we came up with the name when our first choice for a name turned out to be trademarked. Um, <laughs> that's as honest an answer as I can give. Um, oh, my God. We, the, the, the idea behind the line uh, came out of a conversation with myself and a few of my old National Post colleagues uh, many, many years ago. Um, a surprising number of years ago now, a whole pandemic ago, in fact. And we were looking at what was happening in, in the traditional um, print media landscape in particular, and we were realizing that all these trend lines end in the same place. Um, you can you can what worry about how long it may take to get there, but the, the, the final destination did not uh, seem to be in any doubt. So purely in a, in a Google document, I started to throw some names together and just some ideas uh, and some numbers just to kind of get a sense of what it would take to, to perhaps do. Um, the, the idea essentially was to replicate the editorial board of a newspaper, but to do it without the newspaper. Um, and our idea for a name for it, and it was what I called my Google document, was the pivot. And the reason I wanted to call it the pivot was because, uh, as I think media people will get, media companies are always talking about pivoting to this thing or that thing. We're going to pivot to video. We're going to pivot to social. We're going to pivot to short form. We're going to pivot to long form. We're going to pivot to digital. And I, I was just tired of getting, getting pivoted into business oblivion. So we thought we would call it the pivot. But it turns out that that was actually trademarked. So our lawyer came back to us and said, you guys need to come up with another name. And we went, Ugh. I don't know, like the line? And the lawyer said, yeah, sure, okay. And that's that's how we ended up with the name of our magazine. Very exciting story. But it was <laughs> right. called The Pivot. And I honestly, I kind of wish it had been. Who's your uh, major partner in the line? Uh, it's, it's, it's a product of uh, myself and Jen Gerson, uh, who's based in Calgary. And in fact, a credit to Jen, she did the heavy lifting on it for the first year or so. I had other other things going on. And she was saying to me during the pandemic, we should, we should launch it. We should try it. Like we've had this idea floating in a Google document for about five years by that point. Let's give it a shot. Um, the, the technology, something like a Substack, uh, had really matured in the five years since we'd first had the idea. And she said, let's give it a shot. Let's give it a try. And I was like, I don't know. I got a lot of other stuff going on. It's middle of a pandemic. Like I literally cannot leave my home right now. This is not maybe the best time to go start a business. 
And then she said, let's just try it out over the summer and we'll see if it works. And if it doesn't, we'll give it six months and we'll we'll call it off. We'll shut it down. We'll refund everybody's money and we'll deem it a failed experiment. And we'll, we'll go forth with slightly bruised egos. And in our, our line of work, that's probably a healthy thing. <laughs> um, it, it actually ended up being more successful than, than we had uh, expected. So we kind of felt like we had to stick with it. And gradually over the years, the intervening years, I've just been shifting more and more of my attention to it. It's not big enough yet that I think either Jen or I could make a full-time living off of it, uh, at least not without me switching to an all-craft dinner diet, uh, which would be the opposite <laughs> of what my doctor's been telling me to do. Um, but it, it's it's tr- trending in a, in a good way. Um, it's, uh, it's closer to that point than I might have believed possible three years ago. So a number of years ago, I don't want to pretend to be a prophet or prescient or anything like that. It's just one of those things I was noodling around because uh, I'm a big newspaper reader. At one time, it seems like the, the ancient days. I remember living in a big brownstone in Boston, and a dozen papers would come to my doorstep every day. And for those of us in the news business, going through a dozen papers a day uh, really isn't all that unusual. I go through more than a dozen online, as as does Matt, as, as do most of us, really. Yes, I know we always make it look easy, like we're just sort of flying off on the seat of our pants, whatever the, the right cliche is. Uh, but um, in order to make things look easy, you got to work really hard at it and do a lot of prep, 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 prep. But I was thinking years ago when uh, this idea of uh, five or six or 10, 12 papers landing on the doorstep uh, became ancient because we were all doing our stuff online, it, it, it kind of occurred to me that one day people will just develop relationships between themselves, not and newspapers, not big newspaper brands, big hedge fund brands, Big corporate brands, they would just develop relationships with the columnists because that was the major reason I was reading all these papers. It wasn't for the individual news items, which I don't need a newspaper for. I can get those online very, very easily without any corporate banners. And so I'm really glad that this was just a a hunch of mine. I wasn't personally thinking of getting into it. I wasn't thinking of becoming a a full-time columnist. But I thought for friends of mine like Matt Gurney, I thought I saw the future. Matt Gurney, when did you first start thinking about the fact that you don't need a big corporate banner to have a direct connection with Charles Adler, Jen Gerson, or anyone else. When Substack was launching, they approached a series of writers, and I was not one of them, um, and and I've been meaning to chew them out of that uh, ever since. But no, they approached a series of writers and basically made the pitch, as I've heard from some of the writers they did approach, come to us, be your own brand. And one of the writers they did approach had told me about this and kind of had asked me, what, what do you think? And I, and I told them honestly that very few writers in this country will be able to have enough diehard fans to sustain a full-time living. I said a bunch of us could probably carve out a part-time living, but I didn't think that any of us would be, with possible very few exceptions would be popular enough to basically go to enough people and charge them, give me money and I will produce stuff. What Jen and I, Jen agreed with me on that, which is why a few years ago we started to think, let's just do it together. Where if you hate my guts, but you really like her, you might (laughs) go over some money to us every month anyway, can you'll ignore me and you'll get all of her. And we've we've wanted to bring on other other people, other perspective, other friends of ours, as you said at the beginning. Friends are good. For, friendship is nice for its own reasons, but it's also nice in business. And if we could add a bit of variety, we just thought that was an easier sales proposition. But I think to your question of when I began uh, thinking about this, the first time, and it was around 2015, that we kind of ha- came up with the idea of something like the pivot. 
the limits weren't writers. The limits were technical and it was financial, which was I could put together a list of great writers. I had all the contacts in the Rolodex to do that. I didn't know how to pay them. I didn't know how to charge readers. I didn't know how to put up a paywall. I didn't know how to do kind of a, a mailing list management. I didn't know how to do payments processing. All of those technologies existed in 2015, but they were all different. And you kind of had to have someone who could be strong in all of those competencies. And I had precisely zero of them. The real difference in recent years, and there are, there are other competitors to Substack, but I think Substack's kind of won the early branding war where people will say, oh, it's like a Substack. Oh, it's like a, it's like a Kleenex or, oh, it's like a Coke, right? I think they've won the branding war on that one. Um, they automated in one relatively user-friendly package almost all of that. So I don't need someone managing a news list. I don't need someone handling email blasts. I don't need someone managing credit cards or subscriber information. That stuff runs itself relatively smoothly, relatively smoothly in the background. I don't need to worry about that. I can focus on the words. As we get bigger, we might outgrow the platform. And if any Substack guys are listening, don't worry. I'm not tipping our hand here. There may eventually become a point where if we were big enough, it might make sense to actually internalize some of those costs and then not pay Substack the 10% fee they charge on all of our transactions. But we're not there yet. And it let us start publishing on day one. Like we basically getting the trademark, getting a logo, and then talking on the phone a bunch of times to be like, are we really going to do this? That took about a week. Publishing took six hours. And... It's it's a technological thing, and unfortunately, Charles, as you know, man, I mean, you, you, you've been watching the news business in this country and in the United States as well. It's been bad for years, but the last six months or so have really felt like something else, where the, kind of the long-expected reckoning is really coming. When Torstar sold in a transaction for less cash than it had in the bank, that was a signal when post media and Torstar looked at each other and started thinking, you know what, merging with you might help us. That was a signal when Bell Media has been applying to the CRTC to get out of news content publication altogether. That's a signal. And I, I, it's, it's a historical illusion, man, but somebody needs to preserve just enough to keep the spirit of things alive in hopes of better days to come. Is uh, Google and Facebook telling Canadian news to take a hike uh, in response to a government law. Is that a signal, Matt Gurney? Uh, it's, a si- <laughs> it's a series of signals. <laughs> Which one are you interested in? Um, I, I think it's a signal that people in, in our industry have been slow to understand, which is that we are roughly 2% of their traffic in their 40th largest market. I, don't, I think we might have overestimated our importance to these platforms. And I think it's a signal to the federal government that there was a very easy way to go about doing this, which was to apply a tax and then establish a subsidy fund. They could a ta- a ta- sorry, tax, ta- tax who ta- tax the uh, big corporate giants yeah, some, some or, or tax the tax. advertisers. Yeah, uh, some big uh, a big tech tax. You know, tax Google one percent or tax all the big tech companies, and then mm-hmm. just throw some bucks in a in a media subsidy fund. Mm-hmm. Instead, they decided to come up with a really convoluted system in C18 to do a, something they could have easily done. And the tech companies warned them repeatedly that they weren't going to play ball and the government in its wisdom didn't believe them. 
You know, when Pablo Rodriguez, the now former heritage minister, said a couple of weeks ago that he was surprised to see Google and, and Facebook or Meta threatening to pull out, it, he could have, I would have believed angry. I would have believed disappointed. I would have believed disheartened. I couldn't in good faith believe surprise. Pablo Rodriguez is not as dumb as he was pretending to be. Well, but Pablo, I mean, I'm not trying to defend him, but he's not from uh, the meta culture. He's not from the Google culture. He's not from the newspaper culture. He's from his own kind of um, illusion culture. I mean, I, I, I do think that it's got nothing to do with who's in government, but sometimes people in government think that everybody else thinks they're very, very important. And when you're talking about... Um, world-sized companies like like Google and Facebook, uh, we talk about the billions of dollars that they're getting in advertising as a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal in the Canadian context, but globally, it's a drop in the ocean. And they're not going to, obviously, uh, change the way they do business just because Pablo Rodriguez in, in, a, in, a, in a bar in Ottawa on a cocktail napkin has an idea. You said a minute ago that you didn't want to defend the guy. I actually think you just ruthlessly buried him. Like what you just said was way meaner than what I just said. <laughs> well, call me passive aggressive, but I just, I just, I just don't think that the most people who are involved in government have any clue as to what it's like in some other cultures, specifically the Facebook and Google culture. When I heard them talking about what they're making Facebook and Google do, my, 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 you know, gut instinct just said these guys have no idea what they're in for. Look, I'm a parent of young kids, and I've had the, the experience many times of telling my beautiful little offspring, if you do this thing, it will hurt you. It will cause you pain. It will it will damage you, and it will hurt. And my kid's like, no, okay, Dad, okay. And then they just go and do it. And they're shocked, and they're outraged, and like they're, they're filled with a sense of injustice at a world that would allow them to feel such pain. It's like, well, you did the dumb thing, kids. And I think... Google and Meta both gave the federal government extremely clear advance notice that they were not going to play ball. And when the government said, oh, no, of course you will, because we are the government of Canada and Meta and Google said, well, we're not going to play ball. The government was shocked. Um, I, I kind of here's the thing. The thing that really bothered me about all this and there's any number of things that bother me about this, but I'll put this one right up at the top is how many erstwhile smart people, intelligent people, quickly adopted the position of, well, of course it's stupid legislation. Of course it's having predictable consequences, as we were warned about. This is not like just, it was foreseeable. It was, in fact, explicitly foreseen. And, of course, they're reacting in the way they said they were going to. But we're not going to let those guys push us around because we're Canadians here. Charles, my old friend, I wish there were fewer people who were so eager to fight to my death. <laughs> well, you know, here's, a, here's a problem I have. Uh, just PR-wise, if I'm meta Facebook or Google, why do I want to listen to this garbage about how I'm stealing uh, from uh, Canadian media? What do you mean I'm stealing? Advertisers of their own will, I'm not taking them hostage. I'm not taking them to some island and, and waterboarding them. Of their own volition. Canadian companies are coming to me because they like my business model and they like my prices and they like the fact that I can get them new business. And that's what business is all about. So I'm helping to generate business for Canadian companies and the Canadian government and people who want to support the government keep telling me that I'm stealing. How on earth is this theft? The First of all, you're right. But let me actually point out the absurdity of it even more so than that. 
every large news organization in this country, and I would wager most of the small ones, has either a team or at least an individual whose entire job it is, is to package content in a way to maximize uptake and distribution on Google, on Meta, on Instagram, whether it's search engine optimization or the use of hashtags or metadata. There are, you and I have both worked for media companies that had entire teams of people who would do this. If this is theft, this is like a large retail store having a night shift of guys who are paid an hourly wage to load stolen merchandise into the truck owned by the robbers. <laughs> it's like, okay, oh, you know, from like nine to, from nine to, to seven o'clock, we're open and we're selling boots. But starting around midnight until six, the night crew guys come in and load up right. the trucks of the guys who were robbing us. And we pay them minimum wage and we a little top up at Christmas to do it. It like, Nothing is theft if you have a designated digital team in your own operation helping the, the thieves get away with it. It's it's the giveaway that just reveals well, yeah, the lie yeah, at the heart yeah. of, of this entire C18 bill. Well, yeah, and the, and the various uh, companies, including the company that we worked for, has digital people ensuring all of those things that you're talking about. So uh, we saw Google and Facebook as allies. Google and Facebook got us more media power. Uh, we, we we leveraged our assets, and we expected Google and, and Facebook to do what they did. They they were the horses that we rode. And not, now the, the propaganda out there is that, oh, no, no, they, they weren't our horses. They were stealing our, 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 our brands. I mean, I, I just take, take the word theft seriously. Maybe it's because I'm from a small business family, and occasionally, you know, the bad guys come in and rob us. That's a yeah. bad day in business. But I, I don't see Facebook and Google, not because I'm trying to suck up to them. I just don't see them as thieves. And if you do, in the arena of public argument, uh, portray them as thieves, all you're doing is forcing them to take a very, very hard-line position, which is what they're taking. I mean, there is no more hard-line position than F yourself, which is exactly what they're saying. You know, over the last five years, as I've watched Western civilization begin to fray around the edges and then not so much the edges – more than once, I've thought we would be better off without these companies, if we would be better off going back to the telegraph and the typewriter and yeah. just slowing things down a little bit. But as long as we've got them, they have been a godsend to me in my business. And I don't put them on a pedestal. They are amoral at best, immoral at worst. I am well aware of the uh, the danger that these guys pose. And I, I don't think the public is well aware of the danger. I, my, my oldest child is a girl and she's almost 11 years old. And I live in fear of the, of the body image damage that something like an Instagram or a TikTok is going to inflict on her. And I try to limit and control her access. And I know when I do that it, it's a futile effort. So I don't put these companies on a pedestal in any moral sense here. But on the issue of theft of my content, the more they steal my content, the better off I am. Calling that theft is patently absurd. They are, for me, free marketing. And in exchange, they gather data on my customers that they use to make other marketing decisions. This, to me, is almost all upside, or at least it was until about a month ago. So I promised uh, the folks that uh, we would get into the uh, business that Perhaps is none of our business, and that's the Trudeau's uh, separating. Uh, first of all, are you are you surprised? Second of all, is it our business? And third of all, 
And I think the most important political question, does it have any impact on Justin Trudeau's decision to stay or not? I'm not surprised. Uh, I suspect that you, like me, had understood that there was something along these lines that was possible. Maybe not imminent, maybe not guaranteed, but possible. Um, Reports and rumors about their marriage are not new. And the only thing that I find surprising about this is that this is about the fifth or sixth time since he's been prime minister, Mr. Doe has been prime minister, that there's been a panicked flurry of phone calls and emails that I've woken up to saying, today's the day, today's the day. And today actually was the day. So to the extent that I'm surprised, I may be surprised at that. Uh, Is it news? Yeah, it's news. Uh, the, the, The head of our government and the leader of a G7 country is going through in his personal life a terrible thing, and that's news. And the public has a right to know about that. Is it commentary? No, I don't think so. Like as as a commentator, as as an analyst, I don't have anything to say about this beyond that it sucks. They have three young kids. The youngest, uh, the oldest is uh, sixteen, I think, and the youngest is nine. And there's one in the middle, and I feel genuinely terrible for them, and I I, I wish them happiness, stability, and safety. Like that's all I've got on the political side of it. I'm not going to speculate what led up to the uh, the ending of um, of the marriage. I'm not going to don't care, not my business. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it does raise a question of um, the prime minister's own personal decision making. And I, I, I don't think there's going to be movement in the polls. Like, I'm not looking at an electoral map of Canada, imagining which red seats flip blue because of the separation. But uh, this is a government that is behind in the polls, that is struggling on many policy areas, and that has been in power for eight years. The under optimal conditions, you would expect and even forgive any leader kind of going what the hell am i doing like why am i why why am i still doing this and mr trudeau is has now been acknowledged his personal life is not in optimal shape so i wouldn't be shocked if it factors into his thinking here um the other other thing i would say and it's the only comment i want to make about this there has been to my view as a longtime watcher of canadian politics there's been uh, problems at the top of this government, and I don't necessarily mean even partisan or political problems, but there's been decision-making problems, like very obvious decisions have taken inexplicably long to arrive at. And I have a long thought that that was possibly and likely the result of post-COVID, post-Trump exhaustion. Maybe he's exhausted for more reasons than that. And that's I, 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 you know, I, that's kind of as close as I, I come to want to speculating about this personally. But talk to anyone who's been through a divorce and they tell you it's awful. You know, Mr. Trudeau is not immune to being human. So without speculating on, on the actual marriage, which uh, I do think is their business, I, I don't want to go there. Knowing what you do about the prime minister's character, putting the marriage aside, do you think that he's a person that would take a walk in the snow, which is what it was famously I called when uh, Pierre Trudeau said that's what he did and how he made his decision to leave politics. Do you think that his son's decision to walk or not walk in the snow is going to depend on, on polling? Do you see his uh, ego is so fragile as to walk away thinking that he'll be shattered by an election with Pierre Polyev? And of course, I'm loading the barrel here, Matt, because as you know, I just, I don't see that. I don't see Justin Trudeau as ever wanting to appear to be someone who backed down from any fight, especially against someone he really does not respect. I I, I was going to say, I somewhat felt your thumb on the scale when you were asking that question. Um, 
I, I, I think I agree with you. Um, and I think there's, there's three, there's three ways to look at this. The first one is what you just said. These guys don't like each other. And Mr. Uh, Mr. Tr- Justin Trudeau does not want to lose to Pierre Polyev any more than Mr. Stephen Harper wanted to lose to Justin Trudeau. And I actually think in both cases, their parties might've performed better in the end. If the leaders had put the party first, um, the other thing I would say is that uh, Paul Wells, uh, I mentioned earlier in our conversation, there are very few writers in Canada who can probably create a substack powerful enough to fund themselves directly. Paul Wells is maybe one of three or four guys in the country who could do that and has done that. And he wrote about a year ago at his substack something that I thought was an absolutely brilliant insight, which is that somewhere along the the path of this government, this government has change its understanding of itself, where they no longer see themselves as we're here to execute policy. We're here to execute Canada, you know, to to execute plans to make Canada's middle class more prosperous and to help those hoping to join it. This is a government that has come to understand its own purpose as to push back against dark forces, where they believe that they are standing between us and some bad stuff. We can quibble about whether or not that's true, but I would agree with Paul that that's what they think. If you understand your purpose as holding back a horde of barbarians, you don't take a walk in the snow. Even if your marriage breaks up, even if you're down in the polls, even if all your advisors are telling you you're out of touch and you're getting creamed politically on issues that five years ago, you would have avoided those traps. I don't think you do that. Now, I would say the third thing I want to mention is I think when the liberals began to think of themselves more in the role of opposing dark forces as opposed to delivering competent government to 40 million people, I think they started to get themselves into trouble because when you believe you have a moral purpose that transcends governance, you're willing to forgive stuff in your own ranks or even among yourself that you probably shouldn't. And I think there's been a failure in this government at times to hold themselves accountable. And I think ultimately that probably ends up making those dark forces even more powerful rather than less effective. But I know I, I don't really see any contingency other than internal mutiny or electoral defeat that leads Justin Trudeau to throw in the towel. Now, more with Charles Adler. So, Matt Gurney, over the, the years, uh, those of us who are in the opinion business and have a, a solemn obligation to deliver opinions on many things almost every hour, okay, um, we, I think, sometimes forget that there are two bases among the two major parties. There's the conservative base, which we all talk about ad nauseum, mm-hmm. okay, especially since the days of the, the pandemic when I, I think that I can speak for both of us, we were shocked by the amount of people who decided to distrust science, uh, distrust vaccines, and get into the the kind of uh, thinking that we thought uh, could only be indulged in by a tiny, tiny minority of people. It wasn't. Even the convoy was a lot larger than we thought it was. So we talk, as I say, ad nauseum about the conservative base. Why, Why don't we just cross the street and think about the liberal base for a moment? Do you doubt for a moment that the liberal base is concerned about the expanding illiberalism in the world, whether it's in Asia, Europe, most recently, we, we, we hear about the illiberalism in Israel, 
We know that even though Donald Trump has been charged with scores and scores of accounts of criminality, there's still a chance that he'll win an election. Uh, Larry Sabato, who's not a Republican shill uh, at the University of Virginia, one of the, the smartest political analysts in the world when it comes to U.S. presidential elections. I don't think anyone on a granular level follows them more than Professor Sabato. And he was saying that he's been adding up all the numbers. He's checking out what the potentials are for Democratic turnout, uh, what the potentials are for independent candidates, peeling off vote from the Democrats. And he believes uh, that at the moment, if he were a betting man, he'd have to say that Donald Trump is the next president of the United States, certainly an illiberal force. Do you doubt that the liberal base in this country thinks there is a threat of dark forces that Justin Trudeau and the liberals must fight against? No. No, and I and I would even go so far as to agree with them that there are illiberal dark forces sweeping the world. You know, you, you mentioned the convoy. I had this weird moment. I would have been late in the Harper majority. Uh, so probably around, I'm going to guess about 2014. I was in Ottawa for a conference or something. I don't even remember what it was, but I basically had told some of the uh, conservative uh, party guys I knew because they were the government. I said, I'm going to be in town. Let's get a beer or get a, bre- I don't, like a breakfast. Like, I don't remember what it was. But what I remember was basically getting together a couple of guys, few, I'd be like a handful that, that I had worked with and who had provided me information and who had been useful uh, to me over uh, as a columnist. And we were all talking about the coming election. What were the, what were the issues that it was going to be fought over? What were the issues that were going to be um, uh, important to Canadians? What were the, what were the liberal strengths? What were the conservative strengths? And like one of them just kind of casually mentioned, uh, yeah, and we also immigration, we're letting in too many immigrants. And I remember there was kind of like this, this pause in the conversation where we kind of looked at him sort of in the same way. If he had just sort of said, I think my cheese is sentient and it's talking with me. And we all looked at him and we kind of, uh, yeah, okay. And then we just like went back to the conversation and I've actually thought back to that moment a lot because I think there was a failure to understand, and I include myself in this, that there wasn't a conservative base in this country. There was a conservative coalition. And you had a bunch of guys and, and girls, of course, will be inclusive, all lumped together in this big tent conservative coalition who probably had a fairly finite list of things that everybody could agree on. And over his term in office, almost a decade, Stephen Harper probably executed on most of them. And by the end of that mandate, they didn't have a lot that unified them anymore that they could all agree on. They had to kind of discover what's like the next 30 things we would want to do if we were in office. And they found out that all these different groups under the big tent couldn't agree on what they should be. They all had different ideas. Some of them were very much kind of what I would consider to be my slice of conservatism, which is let's have a robust economy and an effective armed forces. And others are like, aren't doctors full of well, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but I think you know where I'm going with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't have to swear it to, to make the point. Go ahead. So, like, how do you get those two guys together and be like, what do we run on next time, right? Like, and I, I think when we talk about the liberalism sweeping the world, it's obviously happening. Like, and like, there are any number of metrics that by reputable third-party organizations that track the retreat of liberalism and of even democratic norms all over the world. What I, and so to, to the liberal base, they're 100% right to be alarmed at this. What they don't understand, and there's two things they don't understand. One of them is that the best way to combat raging illiberal populism, which I don't think is most of the conservative party even, but it's enough, 
it's in, it's like, it's enough right now to be screwing a lot of things up. The best way to fight that is through basic competency. You know, like if you're afraid of illiberal forces taking over, don't get thousands of Canadians lined up for months outside of passport offices. Don't have shortages of children's medicine. Don't like, and I, I they're always quick to say, well, that's well let me, let me, let me throw in, let me throw in a larger one here, Matt, because uh, this is becoming uh, really acute. Uh, don't have a shortage of housing. Millions, uh, of especially, especially, especially if it's important to bring in yep. immigrants. The idea of bringing in half a million immigrants, but not making sure that you've got more than two hundred thousand new housing starts, is politically it, it's malpractice. It's the nicest way I can put it. I mean, the, the government, whether the conservatives want to attack it or not, as another liberal program, the government will have to come in in the next eighteen months or so with some major program talking about not a thousand here or two thousand there but hundreds of thousands of new housing starts to be able Over to year, say that it's absolutely yeah that it's absolutely committed to making sure that we can both bring in immigrants and make sure that people have have food and shelter and yes yep. there will have to be a way for the government to have a bit of a scolding of the, of the major food giants as well because uh, they have done very very well throughout the pandemic post pandemic they seem to want to make the same uh, you know, profit today. I don't blame them. Every company wants to make a buck. They want to make the same profit today that they were making during the pandemic. Yeah. And 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 people in the, at the grocery counters are saying, wait a minute, this isn't the supply chain. Uh, this is simply the capitalism chain. And someone has to have a to chat with these boys. Yeah. And I think with, with housing and, and all these things, the conversation we probably need to have is your house goes up. Like, you know, I, I own a home and a detached home in Midtown Toronto. I'm getting richer every year by virtue of not having died. And as long as I continue to avoid death, I will become richer. There should probably be a conversation at some point whether or not that should be my priority or whether or not not being lynched by a mob full of landless pitchfork-wielding hooligans should be my priority because housing shortages destabilize societies. Not being able to afford food or provide basic medical care to your children destabilizes societies. So... If the, if the liberal base is worried about liberalism on the right, and they should be, basic competence is the, the first answer I would offer. The second one, and this is where my liberal friends get annoyed with me, the liberals have played in a liberal game a time or two themselves. They have not lived up to the standards that they demand the conservatives would live up to here. I don't think they're as bad as some of what I see sweeping the uh, much of the world right now. But you and I both know, Charles, that cabinet ministers in recent years have gotten up in front of Canadians and they've lied. And the guys who would tell us that, hey, we're here to fight online disinformation, so trust us with the internet, they lied. And they have whipped up uh innuendos they've played dirty politics and they've played hardball and i'm not saying this because i'm like born yesterday and virginal like i understand that politics can be nasty and that elbows get up here but i think if you're going to be appointing yourself the role of pushing back against dark forces you need to be able to live up to your own stated ideals here and when you have a guy, we've already picked on him, but when you have a guy like Pablo Rodriguez denying what's in Bill C-18, when you have a guy like the now recently demoted back into obscurity, Marco Mendocino, going through a three-week process of, we're not banning hunting rifles. Maybe we are, but we'll look into it. Okay, we are, but we didn't mean to. 
to, okay, we, we mean to, and we have to, to no, we're not going to do it. You don't get to put this guy on a pedestal in a leadership role yeah. and say, trust us. You've got to hold yourself to a high standard of virtue. Well, yeah. I mean, if, you, if, if you're going to fight dark forces, you have to be perceived as being competent to, to fight dark forces. And, more. And, if you're, and if you're not competent to figure out your rifle policy, then nobody's going to believe that you're, you're going to put a sword through the heart yeah. of the dark forces. I mean, you know, I, yeah, competence matters. There's, occasionally, you can, you can see into the failings of, of people by basically seeing whether or not their stated concerns match their, their, their responses here, right? One of the interesting things that I, I wrote about in a column and I wrote out the line a few months ago, after I read the public order commission, spent four days reading that thing. Cause that's how I party. One of the things that I realized looking at the incompetence of the response federally, provincially, and municipally was that if the convoy, and I, I said it to my column, if the convoy had actually been what many Canadians, including in government told us it was, if it had actually been that big of a threat, given the ineffectiveness of our government response, we would be living in the Confederate Republic of Nazi Canada by now. Because these guys would have just steamrollered Ottawa. You know, 3,000 guys with like manageable logistics skills showed up and took on a federal government where ministers don't check their emails. And guess who won the first three weeks? If you are freaked out about a liberalism on the right, I'm not asking anything for but like a good faith, determined effort to provide competency and effective leadership. And for even suggesting that, I will 100% be accused of being a shill of the right, peddling disinformation, and you will be accused of the same for having me on. Well, of course. <laughs> Look, um, there are three things that, that people actually have to have. And if they don't, you're talking about destabilization earlier. People have to have jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got to have food. And they've got to have shelter. If two of those at the moment, uh, the food and shelter business is uh, not guaranteed. If people feel they have trouble securing both food and shelter, of course they're going to become somewhat destabilized. And of course they're going to be open uh, to the dark messages. Here's my question. If the Trudeau government decides to focus like a laser on food and shelter, will they get it done in the next two years? No, and I'll tell you why. It's the if tree. Let's move down the if tree. If they decide to focus like a laser on those two issues, if they sustain their effort with political capital and financing for an extended period of time, if that is effectively deliverologized by the civil service, which is a complete wreck these days, and if we find the private sector is capable of pivoting fast enough to make a difference. And if all of that happens in a time frame that is suitable and convenient ahead of the next election, the government might do okay. If any one of those things doesn't happen, I just don't think there's time enough to begin to meaningfully start to turn these things around. This is one of the fascinating things about this government and whether or not it's the convoy or other examples we could pick on, they're very slow to sense danger. And once they sense it, they're very slow to do anything about it. And once they try to do anything about it, their batting average is, yeah. So I, I'm, not, I'm not predicting electoral doom for the liberals. Believe me, I've, the, the conservatives these days seem determined to find a way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, and they may well do it. But 
the, the liberals at the very least have put themselves in a position where I don't think they are masters of their own destiny. One of the reasons I'm laughing, Matt, it's, it's not because of what you're saying. It's because of what I'm thinking, which is, of course, being sparked by what you're saying. When you talk about the conservatives finding ways, the conservatives, whether people want to believe this or not, they can check it out for themselves just based on recent by-election activity. The conservatives are still obsessed by Maxime Bernier. Mm-hmm. Right? They're obsessed about 3% of the voting population. They are far more focused on Maxime Barnier not eating a piece of their lunch in rural Canada where the Conservatives couldn't lose if they tried. They're more concerned about Maxime Barnier getting a chunk of rural Canada than they are about 905, which is uh, the area of uh, votes uh, just a, a few minutes from where you're sitting right now. So I, I'll just ask you this in the most polite Canadian way possible. Do you think the Conservative Party ought to focus on the suburbs of Toronto at least as much as it does on the the, the suburbs of Wetaskiwin, Alberta? Let me tell you simply the headline of the most recent dispatch, the line published a few days ago. Uh, we, we publish articles on week, on weekdays and we publish our dispatches on weekends and our dispatches are essentially editorials. They're, they're unsigned, written collaboratively by myself, uh, Jen Gerson and, and and others as we feel necessary. And our headline was simply, stop scaring the normies, CPC. If you focus on issues that matter to Canadians, you're going to win. Because the Liberals have put themselves in a situation where a stiff breeze could defeat them. If the Conservatives insist on relitigating either the, the split with Maxine Bernier or their own prior leadership tussles, I don't know if they win. Um, again, the, the, the liberals are in a difficult situation, and it's very possible that the conservatives could win a fluky election. It's happened before. We've both seen things like that happen. But if we actually want to see a determined conservative effort to win, I think Pierre Polyev needs to do what he was doing earlier this week, was absolutely skewering the prime minister using his own words on housing and affordability issues. And if Pierre Polyev wants to lose the next election, he should do what he was doing last week, which was coming up with tweets about vaccine mandates that liberals supported in 2021, just like Doug Ford and Jason Kenney did back in 2021. Like, it it seems to me, and this is probably worth a conversation on its own, but it seems to me most people want to memory hole the pandemic. It was that unpleasant thing that happened and we yes. like, that will no longer be brought up in polite company. And then I opened my, my X account, because apparently that's what we call Twitter now. And the conservatives have this like attack ad, like just like a, a meme coming out about a liberal who supported something that two years ago, like 91% of Canadians supported, including 82% of conservatives. And I'm thinking we can do that or we can talk about housing. And like, there's really two issues here. But what we're seeing, I honestly think, I don't think we're seeing grand electoral strategy here. I think we're seeing personal grievances political scale. Personal grievances is a, is a nice way of putting it. I do think you can agree or disagree, just like everything else we talk about. But I do think that the anti-vax thing is political heroin for conservatives. And they can't stay off it. No matter how much the doctors tell them this is really not healthy for you, it is so easy to suck them in uh, to that particular what you call uh, memory hole. They don't want to forget uh, the pandemic, and they don't want to forget how 
strong they felt with all of the clicks coming in and all of the funds and all of the convoy action, all of the uh, you know uh, conservative coalition activity coalescing around this idea that Justin Trudeau and Anita Anand were were killing or severely injuring Canadians by giving them vaccines. As loony as that sounds to you and me and many people who are listening and watching this podcast, they are still hooked on that. There is a big chunk of the Conservative Party that is hooked on this idea of talking about how vaccines are dangerous, and the only thing more dangerous than vaccines is a vaccine mandate. We, I, it's almost trite to say that Canadians are divided or that Canadians are polarized. It's, it's, you know, you could make you can make that a fridge magnet and slap it on every refrigerator across the land, right? Like we 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 say it a thousand times a day. But I do think one of the things that happened, and, and this division is literally true, is that we are divided into different communication uh, echo chambers and ecosystems where. It has never been easier to talk to only only to people who agree with you about everything. And we can easily curate our own um, experiences and be left with no, no natural disagreement. And I think a lot of people out there genuinely and sincerely believe that something that maybe maybe 15% of the population believes is overwhelmingly the majority view because there's nothing in their natural environment that provides any corrective feedback and you and i are both uh the result of millions of years of mammalian evolution we evolved to live in small societies where we communicated face to face where shame and social opprobrium kept our weirder impulses in check and now i'm sitting in my basement you seem to be sitting in your living room and thousands of people in their homes or cars or on a walk in the dog are gonna are gonna listen to us some of them are going to agree with us. Some of them are going to disagree with us. And not, not a one of them is going to have any sense of whether or not they're in the majority. That part of our collective social experience has broken down. Now, the Netflix streaming options have never been better. But our ability to interface as a society seems to be falling apart. So, like I said, the telegraph and the typewriter, man, things yeah. work pretty well then. Well, there was a time not that long ago when we thought the majority meant the majority of people in our community or the majority of people in the country. I never thought the majority meant the majority of people's followers. Most people have less than 150 followers, and that's what the majority is for most people. The majority of that 150, it's really hard to have social cohesion, and it's really hard to avoid uh, deep polarization when uh, when people don't see the mathematical majority as, as their majority. Matt, uh, promise me this. Uh, can we do this again soon? Well, I mean, I'm about to fly to Europe on a transatlantic flight. So barring any sudden airliner disasters, yeah, sure, we'll do it right. again. I do, we'll do I do cling to that caveat, though. I don't want right, to let uh, you down. Okay, and I hope the airlines don't let you down. We'll do this again very, very soon. Matt Gurney, uh, formerly with the National Post, he's got his Substack, and it's The Line. Look it up. Google it. I don't think Google is boycotting uh, Matt Gurney. I think he's... <laughs> A citizen of the world, Matt Gurney and Jen Gerson are involved in the line, and Matt Gurney was involved in this podcast, and I thank him for that. And I thank everyone for for listening, watching. You can get us on multiple platforms. doesn't matter to me where you go, but when you do go to a particular platform, if you like what you hear, uh, give us a follow, would you? And uh, maybe even a, a review if you're, if you're feeling generous. For Matt Gurney, I'm Charles Adler. Thank you. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press and every day at criermedia.co.